0: Berry Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. Oh man, it's been a long time, hasn't it? Way too long, way too long. The production team and I had initially planned a brief hiatus so that we could focus on a grad seminar we were all working on called Communicating Academic Ideas to Non-Academic Audiences, which involved the use of video cameras and other studio gear. But then the shit of life hit the fan. Like I applied to, got interviewed for, and was given an offer for an administrative position at a university. What was I thinking? I know, I know now. Sick, sick, mentally sick. My God. Well, now we're back at it, and we should be steady for quite a while. If our new scheduling system holds up, fingers crossed, thoughts and prayers welcome, We're going to get up to a number of new things in the coming months. One of them is that we'll be starting a new People's and Things newsletter on the platform Ghost. In the newsletter, you can learn a ton of stuff about the podcast, including some behind the scenes thinking and planning, and also read posts by me on various issues and topics around humanistic and social scientific studies of human life with technology. And also you can learn about various book projects I'm working on, including one you may have heard about in past episodes, A Good History of Shit Jobs. I'll tell you what, I'm just going to put a link to the newsletter in the show notes for this and coming episodes rather than like reading out the URL to you, which would be like peoples.things.ghost and so on. Just, Just a total nightmare. So how should we get the show going again? My God, it's been too long way too long i got it i got it how about we start with water i mean there's like almost nothing as basic and essential to human and other life as water for us it's air and it's water that's it man that's your starter kit i was reading today that in like wilderness survival circles there's something called the rule of three The idea is that on average, people can survive three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, and three weeks without food. Water is really, really important. And yet, though maybe we don't think about it very often, most people in our society drink water that is highly, highly industrialized. Now, my family and I, our house is on a well, and there's people like us out there. But for most folks, when they open their taps, the stuff that comes pouring out, it is an industrial product. And how's that shit taste where you live? Does it taste good? Or does it taste like what my family and I call town water as opposed to that fine, fine mountain water? Town water tastes like it's got a healthy dose of chlorine in it. How about where you're at, huh? It turns out that scientists and engineers have put a great deal of work into controlling and improving the taste of treated water. That's the story we learn in Christy Spackman's book, The Taste of Water, Sensory Perception, and the Making of an Industrialized Beverage. Spackman is an assistant professor of art science with a joint appointment in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the School of Arts, Media, and Engineering both at Arizona State University. In this interview, Christy and I talk about how her background in food studies, how she got onto water as a kind of food studies topic, water as food, other neat projects she's up to, and you know, other stuff. We had a lot of fun together, as you'll see. And hey, and I know, I know folks, you've been missing it. I've been missing it too. Hey, get excited. Oh, man. God, that feels so good. It's been way too long. Thank you. Jesus, H. Woo. Woo. Christy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Thank you, Lee.
0: The Taste of Water is, is a neat book. When you talk to strangers about it, what do you say it's about and what were you trying to do with it?
1: <laughs> Often, I start by asking them how their water tastes because it's a really good opening for people to actually think about what the book is about, because to me, it's really a story about how the water that comes out of our taps and even the bottles we buy is not at all a natural substance, even though it appears to be not dissimilar from what you might find in a lake or a stream and so It's it's really a book inviting people to sit down and think with the substance that's so everyday that they've probably forgotten it has a history.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. I I, it resonated with me because um I'm one of these folks. So you most you mostly talk about like large municipal water systems and cities. I live outside a town in the country and I have a well and I'm I love I have not gotten it tested because I don't want to know what's in it, frankly. But um uh uh it's i love the flavor i love it so much that actually i have a little water bottle here i bring my my mountain water in so i don't have to drink town water which tastes a little chlorinated so i mean like your book really kind of opens up this wide kind of panoply of like you know this thing that we interact with every day um but yeah we kind of take it for granted and it's also like i remember uh when i was a kid we had family friends who lived in a farm outside of Joliet, illinois where i grew up and their water was very sulfury in ways that was like you know and so i mean talk to us a bit about like you say that your book mostly focuses on the the mid to late 20th century but what was you know like what was what, talk about water before like the mid 20th century like what was water like in the 19th and early 20th centuries before your story sure. starts
1: um, by the way, your story about your own well speaks very true to me because I grew up in a small town where they added chlorine and that was it. And it's delicious water, especially if you <laughs> Um So I, I think part of what's so interesting about this is late 19th century, early 20th century, the water people got was really variable. So, for example, uh-huh. one of my favorite things is George C. Whipple, who is... Uh, A prolific early public health expert worked at Harvard and other things. He writes about the fact that water in New England was known for being tea colored. And I just, you Mm. know, I imagine if I were to turn on my tap and drink, have tea colored water come out, I would not drink it. I would probably be calling my municipal provider to say, hey, or if I had a well, I would be checking my pipe quality and also uh, having someone Mm -hmm. come out to check my well. Similarly, folks in St. Louis. Uh, were known before the World's Fair to have water that came out was pretty red um, from mm. their, their pipes. And so there's just this variability that was seasonal, and this variability yeah. that was really related to if you were lucky enough to live somewhere rural, which many Americans at the time were, so you had access to well water. Um, and, and then also just what's going on in the environment, what time of year it is. And you still get hints of that. So Phoenix, yeah. where I live, um, late fall is what I would call our our, our tasty season. Although I'm going to use the word "tasty" with a little hesitation, <laughs> just because there there are the flavors are a lot more pronounced than they are, say, in early spring. And it's just huh. really a marker of what's going on upstream.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, and, I'm, and I'm, musty. I mean, the, the... <laughs> and musty, oh. The you know that that regional variability i mean you know like that was a business too there were these like you know the um uh there were places like sulfur spring um Mm -hmm. uh resorts and stuff right i mean so this kind of like the variability was very important actually and yeah that's actually
1: what got me into this question. I was uh, originally studying mineral water in France and trying to think about how it had gone from <laughs> being a medicine people would go pay a lot of money for to this thing they would pay a lot of money for on their table, although a different amount of money. And I I have this hilarious statement in an early research proposal where I say I don't need to look at municipal water at all. <laughs> and it turned <laughs> out that I mostly ended up <laughs> looking at municipal
0: yeah. water. <laughs> Well, but that's what that happens with
1: research. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That variability is the thing that made water so valuable if it was a mineral water. But for everyday drinking water, that variability was something folks didn't want. And although I don't write about this in my book, um, there's some really interesting work that was going on in France in the late 19th century where. Uh, the medical establishment was trying really hard to regulate this new form of bottled water that was increasingly circulating because they wanted it to still have the medicinal properties that it it. did when you went to the spa. But um, business people being business people (laughs) recognize Mm -hmm. that when you send someone a bottle of water and it has chunks in it, They're not very excited about it. And so these heavily mineralized waters that you get down at Vichy, for example, or at Saratoga Mm -hmm. Springs, if you're in the U.S., um, once you stick them in a bottle, the minerals tend to precipitate out as the water cools, as it travels. Mm -hmm. And anyone who has a teapot and lives somewhere with hard water knows this experience. (laughs) you Get the chunks in your water. And so they started letting the water sit before they would put it in bottles and send it out. So there's this really big legal fight that happened. um, And it just turns out that the regulators weren't strong enough and the bottlers weren't. I, I actually think that's part of why mineral water became as successful as it was in the early 20th centuries, because there was this material change in the quality. So it tasted better. There was less stuff in it.
0: Wow. And so I was going to ask you how you got kind of started down the road of this book. Was it this earlier project you had on mineral water that kind of got you going?
1: Yeah. So um, like you, I'm interested in technologies and how they travel. And so this initial work of trying to understand taste for mineral water and taste in mineral water led to me thinking about the ways that the the flavors of water were managed, and I'd happen. I'm familiar with Ann Noble's uh, wine flavor wheel. I don't know if you've encountered it before. My book.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, no, I hadn't. You
1: have. Okay. No, I had, <laughs> I had not.
0: I had not. Yeah.
1: So I have a background. In, my master's degree is in food chemistry and food science, and I had this aspirational desire to be a sensory scientist um, because <laughs> most of my friends are sensory scientists, and they were studying tastes and smells and I came across and noble's work there. And and this idea that you could like evaluate the flavors of of something and create this really cool technology that could, even though it was a piece of paper or a bunch of pixels on a screen, it, it could circulate and allow people to yeah. learn to taste together and develop this shared experience. And about the same time I was over in France doing a study abroad and learned to taste Comte cheese with Christy Schilds Argel, who's at the American University of Paris. I hope I pronounced your last name right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we went out and we were learning to taste this cheese. And I went, wow, there's gotta be a technology like this for water. And it turns out there was. It just wasn't for uh, yeah. describing delicious water, it was for describing the defects in municipal water. Right.
0: No, it's so neat. And, and, you know, just to make another kind of sensory history connection, and one of the things it reminded me of I've written about is, like, um, these kind of, like, uh, gradients of, like, black that were used to judge air pollution coming out of, like, industrial things. So there's, like, yeah, you are tapping into this larger kind of world of these kind of wheels and stuff that were used for thinking and sensing uh, for a long time. And I really like that.
1: And I think, I mean, You've written a lot about AI and the over focus on it. One of the things I'm really excited about in the human triumph over AI as I see it is the fact that um, that the inherent subjectivity and the backgrounds that people bring to making those judgments are really important things that you just can't program into something. At least I think they're excessively important
0: yeah it seems that way we'll see but yeah (laughs) i hear you i mean i think that yeah so far it's true hey i i don't often ask people about their acknowledgement sections but there was something different about your acknowledgement which is that you actually had a kind of uh wheel that you called the patchwork constellation of mentors which uh you know had all the folks who had influenced you over the years around it um I thought that was really cool. How'd you come up with that? And yeah, what, what moved you to create that?
1: So I've been developing a theory of mentorship over my graduate career, which is essentially realizing uh, through experiences where I had unrealistic expectations of my mentors that they mm. would be able to know everything and do everything. And as I've come to realize, every mentor is has really great skills and also has uh, places where they're they're not as well equipped to mentor, and maybe when I say not as well equipped, what I really mean is they're humans who have lives, and they deserve mm-hmm. to have those lives. And you, as the mentee, mm-hmm. are not the life. <laughs> um, and so I've been thinking for a while about patchwork mentorship, is what I've called it, because it's to get enough mentors to cover you appropriately is like building a patchwork. Oh, nice. but, and if you think yeah. of it that way, it's a really powerful metaphor for helping you figure out am i like do i have enough mentors have i been reaching out and building the network i need to and it it removes some of the anxiety and frustration that i felt as an early graduate student over like i don't i don't have enough guidance here to to say no actually i'm an agent in this this isn't about other people Mm -hmm. it's about me going out and talking to folks And my friend, Melissa Mason, um, is a modern quilter. And when she made this quilt, we were all made of stars. It just really struck me. And it's funny because she'd probably tell you it's not her favorite of her many quilts. (laughs) But (laughs) the the idea that we are a multitude of things really aligned with that theory of Patrick mentorship. And so I just reached out to her and said, hey, Melissa, can I use your pattern essentially to do my acknowledgments? And she said, yeah.
0: That's cool. Uh, we, uh, we should talk more about it at some point. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, yeah, the the part of it about uh, you know how how we are agents uh, in our in our mentorship, and also, I mean, I'm I'm interested in maybe the role that institutions can play in helping people think through that patchwork building. So, uh, yeah, let, we'll talk more you, about that.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say it's also useful if you yeah. have an institution that fails you in some way to. To have a patchwork <laughs> quilt. <Shit>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know I know what you mean. Uh, so let me let's talk. I want to open more the kind of taste history because uh, you know you probably identify as a kind of sensory scholar. Are you in? You're from that world? Is that part of your identity?
1: Uh, it's an identity I have decided to claim in part because, mm-hmm. like many scholars who work at the intersection of science technology society i i have a multiple background i'm trained originally as a biochemist molecular biologist then i went to culinary school at night because i like to cook and learned about Mm -hmm. food science and got really excited about that and then wanted to ask questions that were very social and i had a very astute mentor at the time who said hey christy we'd love to have you stay but this might not be the right program And some bad mentorship (laughs) happened to my partner at that time where he uh, Mm -hmm. was finishing up work at University of Chicago and uh, horrible mentorship. So we ended up leaving that program and he was looking for a new program and I was had applied to NYU's food studies program. So that's the long route that got me to where I am. And what made most sense to me was discovering that there was this world where people were critically thinking about how science and technology function. And I, I had enough of a background to, to sit in a class and when people would talk about how someone was doing PCR and be really intrigued by a certain decision to actually know why that decision was made and the history behind it. And so mm-hmm. I got really interested in, hey, there's this whole food system. It's making food using those techniques I was learning with. I'd like to, like to study and understand it.
0: That's cool. One of the moves you make is um, in in the intro is that I think so much of our conversation about water, for good reason, focuses on issues of safety and access to safe water. (laughs) Safe water, like not full of lead and not full of bacteria and so many other things, right? But there's also this whole other world of flavor and taste. And one of the things you, you do to get us into that is, the readers that is, is talk about water as food, so um which i thought i mean obviously it's true on some level but i had never i had never thought about it that way just as your introduction suggests i might not have so yeah just talk about that move like what what led you to do it and what did you find useful about that move as a writer
1: sure um what led me to do it so i mentioned i had originally been studying mineral water in france before that i had been studying functional beverages so uh, my initial Project, as a doctoral student, was looking at things like vitamin water and how they came to be, and those sit much more comfortably and obviously under the food or dietary supplement sort of mm-hmm. category and because of that, there was a pretty natural progression for me as a thinker to say, water's this thing we consume, we put into our bodies, it nourishes us it it helps us become and that's hilarious. It helps us become, uh, it helps our bones true. grow strong. <laughs> like, we are you so sound much... like Nietzsche
0: or Deleuze there for a second, but yeah, I'm totally with you. It does help us become, that's right.
1: <laughs> I mean, you take the water out, there's not
0: much of us. <laughs> so, no, that's right.
1: <laughs> um, it, and that background made it very easy for me to think about the 3% of municipal water that's being produced as food and the other 93% yeah. as a very strange application of food, which might be really useful in a world where we're taking corn and turning it into biodiesel or plastics. And, and you know, what does it yeah. mean when a food is also many, many other things? What are the implications? Although I don't explore mm-hmm. that in this book.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Thanks and, for um, idea.
0: So the, uh, I'm gonna, uh, there's this, the uh, you talk about industrial. I'm gonna butcher this word. It's terroir. I, terroir is a terror for me uh, as a as pronunciation. But t- talk about what what your that concept. You know, t- like to def- define that concept for us and play it out a bit. What sure. you, what are you talking about when you talk about <laughs> yeah?
1: So uh, one a shout out to Amy Truebeck. Um She has this wonderful book called Taste of Place, where that's her gloss for the French term terroir. And I I think it's really useful, like the taste of a place, but it goes beyond that. It's also the the labor practices and the regulatory structures that come into being to allow a certain product to emerge with a taste of place. The French are Mm -hmm. um, very invested in this concept because it has really helped both protect some traditional modes of food production, specifically wine and cheese, um, and is also kind of become its own branding practice um and there's a mm-hmm. lot of really mm-hmm. interesting work emerging or that has emerged in the united states looking at things like maple syrup does it also have terroir and because honey I'm in... honey you're right yeah very much have you had buckwheat honey
0: i don't think so but mm. there's uh, a lot of locally produced honey here and they have very different um vibes depending on the you know, what they've been fe- eating. So, yeah. yeah, well,
1: sometime buckwheat. it's uh, very strong. It has a little bit of barnyard going on in it, which is fascinating.
0: Okay, all right. <laughs> um, but
1: for me, as I was thinking about what I was seeing these water producers do, specifically in Chicago in the early to mid 20th century, as they're struggling with mm-hmm. this massive pollution in Lake-, Lake Michigan that would show up depending on the weather and would show up depending on the season and depending on how the winds blew, either they were fine or they were having chicken feathers come out of their uh, taps. Mm -hmm. They, to me, it started to seem that this effort to manage taste and smell was not dissimilar from the efforts that I see when I read about wine Mm. producers or cheese makers working to manage the tastes and smells in their own products. But the difference was this difference of absence. So trying to remove the markers of industry, trying to remove those markers that would make it so people would increasingly turn away. And you obviously have a double side of it. You have the industrial pollutants that were being dumped into Lake Michigan from steel mills, from Mm -hmm. abattoirs. But on the other side, you just have the naturally occurring tastes of a place, the the actual terroir. And so to me, there's a doubled form of industrial terroir going on, which is both the the tastes that have been contributed to a place by industry and then the the end flavor experience which is really an absence of taste. Mhm. I'm going to drag a grab a drink.
0: Yeah, yeah, please.
1: Starting to hear my mouth was... do that thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, just please take care of yourself as you need and if you need to take a break that's fine too. Um there was one other con I mean we we can play there's there's a, the in- intro is very rich so we could go on for a long time but there's one other thing I want to play with uh, before we move kind of get into the meat of it for sure which is um you know you, you 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 play with this concept that's been around for a while of agnotology which is how you know we come to not know things and uh how I mean how do you find this useful for talking uh about water
1: sure um So you can cut this, but a little digression. I met Jennifer Croissant Mm -hmm. years ago at 4S when I was flying solo and just sat down next to her and we started chatting and she told me about this concept. I was like, that is so cool. And um, (laughs) as I was studying water and seeing these efforts to erase things, like, wait, this this is what Jennifer and Robert Proctor and all those folks have been talking about and arguing for. But it's, it's something that's not been looked at because we don't often think about that quiet work of managing tastes and smells that's happening upstream in an industrial food system it's largely hidden from view unless you've been trained or worked in a food science or sensory science capacity because that's where that work is happening and so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: obviously as a scholar in interested in or dedicated to thinking about food. I'm also interested in the way food has its own power and the, the politics at play in what we put into our bodies, but even in what is available to put into our bodies, what is available as mm-hmm. a sensory input. Um, so for me, agnotology really is this potent tool for engaging with all of this work of sensory masking that goes on. I don't know. Are you a soy milk
0: drinker? I'm not. No.
1: But you've had soy milk in your life.
0: I've had. Oh, yeah. I used to. Yeah, Okay. for sure. So um,
1: you've undoubtedly experienced with an organic soy milk that came in a box that's very astringent and kind of beanie versus the silk stuff Mm -hmm. you can buy in the grocery store that's smooth and none of that's present.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've even made it from scratch before oh, so, so like you really that has know a whole other flavor profile yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. really so, tastes like beans then yeah
1: so there's there are these masking agents that are put in there they fall yeah. under natural flavors and to me that is that is absolutely a form of agnotology you're creating this ignorance about what soy milk tastes like if you make it yourself so people will then in turn choose to to consume it more regularly because it tastes more like cow's milk or or if nothing else it just doesn't do the thing in your mouth that uh straight up soy milk would do
0: yeah and other cultures might find that very appealing of course Mm -hmm. that that flavor but americans are like no that's not what my milk's supposed to taste like right (laughs) right (laughs) yeah well that's great um so I mean, you already kind of started down this road, but you you start the the um the 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 body portion of your book by on the south side of Chicago, and um tell us about why you start there and about the creation of ton or is that what people call it or the threshold odor number yeah yeah do they call it ton or do they say t o n
1: oh oh that's a great question um most of just briefly most of the Scientists I interviewed and talked with are very opposed to the threshold order number, so I don't remember them specifically calling it one or another, except to say they didn't like it. Um, Mm -hmm. So, one, I lived on the south side of Chicago uh, for a while, and as I mentioned in my book, I thought our water was pretty good, and my little brother didn't. And so when I was mm-hmm. tracking the technologies for managing taste, the the actors who were doing this work of managing taste and discovered that they were all working on the south side of Chicago, I was just thrilled because it was it had been home yeah. for me for so long. And what I think is so interesting is that Chicago, of all of the places in the US, would be the place where this work to manage unwanted tastes and smells would emerge. I think it could have easily also happened in Philadelphia or in New Jersey, uh, because mm-hmm. both areas that also have surface water that was highly polluted mm-hmm. by industrialized industrialization, industrial activities. Um, mm-hmm. But for some reason, Chicago had the money and the interest and the political will. And I think um, while I don't acknowledge this in my book per se, the the World's Fair had played a role in helping Chicago politicians think about their city as a place that outsiders would come and look at and consider. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to me, part of the building of Chicago's water infrastructure, obviously the reversal of the Chicago River, was related to the World's Fair. That set in place a political will, Despite the fact that the city itself regularly was underfunding, like most cities, its municipal waterworks, um, the political mm-hmm. will to move forward over multiple administrations, with hiring people, bringing them in, um, and even despite how the Chicago political machine worked, continuing to keep those people working because it, when the water was good, the politicians were successful, and when it wasn't good, the politicians we're also aware of it um i was mm-hmm. intrigued i'm not i still need to poke down this hole some more but the chicago uh, water folks have a lot of unarchived uncatalogued um mm. documents that i haven't been able to access in part because they don't have i offered to write a grant to come and like actually catalog mm-hmm. for them so i could get my hands on it and they don't have enough money to do the matching funds for the grant so. Uh, someday. Um, but bummer. I, I really someday, want yeah. to better understand the demographics of who they were serving at that time period. Yeah. As you probably know Chicago Southside, um, at least contemporarily and through much of the 20th century, has been a predominantly African-American and immigrant community mm-hmm. with some exceptions, Hyde Park being one of them. But what really surprised me was the fact that it was the first area in the city that had access to better tasting water. Um, And that seems to be in large part because that's where the plant was, the experimental plant was being built. They could afford to build it there. And also because it's where the, this is what I don't know, but I suspect that the people who were working in the plant lived near the plant, not phone books.
0: That's fascinating. I wonder how it's connected the, this history and the sighting of that plant is connected to, you probably know the story of the reversing of the Chicago river and how they turned the Chicago river into the Chicago sanitary canal and started sending all the waste from the city down to my hometown of Joliet. They sent us all their shit basically <laughs> to my hometown of Joliet. <laughs> so I wonder, yeah, I wonder how they are looking at, um, you know the uh, you know the sighting might have something to do with those those uh, the way effluents were are working around and stuff. Yeah, um, it's a, it's great an interesting question. question. Yeah, the um one of the things I liked about your story, unsurprisingly, is that it's a lot of times just it's very. Fo- I mean, there's scientists involved in research networks, but a lot of it on the you know when it when it hits the practical stuff, it's all about water workers and what the tools they need to use. Uh, it was kind of, like there was a kind of maintainer's-y vibe for me when you're reading it. And so, like, was that, did that just come out of the sources or, yeah, I mean, like, how did you, yeah, say say a bit about the workers.
1: Sure. Uh, first, the term water workers, I've had a reviewer push back on me for, but uh, it's mm. most, I, I picked it as kind of a, an umbrella term to capture the people who are both working down the lines out in, in the field and the engineers who are, also, somehow training themselves to be sensory scientists uh, working in mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. in the labs because i don't I don't know that there is really a good term to capture beyond maintainers mm-hmm. that what what they're doing, and it did really emerge from the sources in the sense of as I was tracking the technology, the people who were using the technology were were just everyday folks who were in labs trying yeah. to really fulfill this, what they understood as being a strong public mission to deliver not just safe water, but good quality water. And I think that's anyone who works at a job where a gazillion or maybe not a gazillion, many people engage with your product. They want to go home and have someone say, hey, I appreciate the work you do instead of what most of our public service agents get, which is why is this so horrible? So, yeah,
0: Yeah. it's just who is doing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw these these folks are still very important i I mostly looked at rural water systems that have or semi you know like smaller town water systems that have a lot of problems and it's clear that it's just everyday folks running these things and they do they are very prideful of their uh are proud of the work they do um so in you next turn to the role of analytical chemistry and the rise of food science in the 50s and 60s and now You've kind of explained your background, so part of your your interest here kind of seems, yeah, more natural. But um, <laughs> yeah, like, what, how did what did uh, what did your um, how did these folks kind of shift things? I mean, the the coming in of this new kind of expertise.
1: So um, I, I think what's so interesting is that the water workers were relatively unaware of the rise of early efforts in the food science world to manage tastes and smells that these were two Mm -hmm. parallel streams dealing with similar problems in a way, which is how do you get people to like the product you're producing and how do you make certain the product you're producing doesn't kill someone, but, but relatively ignorant of each other's work just because of the way different disciplines are siloed in the conversations folks have. Um, to me, the rise of food science and specifically sensory science as a subset within food science is really fascinating mm-hmm. because it's so related to wartime efforts. And you know, we're sending people out far away from home, wartime or space time efforts, um, and mm-hmm. and we need them to eat the foods that we're we're sending them with yeah. that are nutritionally complete but not very tasty. And this is
0: mm-hmm. an ongoing
1: conversation in. Our current imagination of, hey, let's send people to Mars. How do we get them to like like the foods? And also turns out foods have a shelf life. How do we (laughs) what do we do? So (laughs) once the foods expired, they have their own foods. And to me, these processes of figuring out, hey, what's in a food, what causes off tastes and smells, are so critical to all of the late twentieth-century story about industrial food period, be it water, be it cake mix, that mm-hmm. this work of developing instruments like the gas chromatograph and the its twin, the gas chromatograph olfactometer, which is essentially a machine that takes smells and breaks them down into little bits, and then with the olfactometer mm-hmm. bit sends it out so you can sniff and figure out where it is um, in the mixture and hopefully identify what those individual parts are those the rise of that as a ch- analytical chemistry approach for thinking about food and sensory experience writ large have really changed the way we even imagine the things we encounter and by we I should say experts
0: mhm sure um and well I, yeah and it pops out into the pop world every once in a while. I mean, I feel like that's one of those, like food science is one of these things that gets covered in the New Yorker ever, or something like once a <laughs> decade or something like that. Right? I mean, cause it's why we like crispy chips and stuff yep. like that is yep. actually pretty fascinating. But how did it, so how did it, so it starts off as two different communities and that makes sense to me. I mean, like, I think food science was often very much in the corporate um, mm-hmm. food world. Um, but eventually they end up coming together somewhat so how did that how did that connection end up happening then
1: sure um and and i'll just note that perhaps part of why food science has been overlooked is it's uh often viewed by more sciency types as not real science like there's this Uh moment uh when a physicist discovers food science harold not harold mcgee um I can't remember his name. Hervé Tisse in France like discovers food science uh-huh. and starts this whole thing. And meanwhile, the food scientists, like, yeah, we've been doing that for a couple decades
0: now. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, on the other side, you have kind of like the organic critics who see food science as like the devil or something. So when you combine those two things, maybe you really get yeah, a yeah. real blind spot where no one's looking, you know? So
1: <laughs> So yeah. from the water world perspective, this does tell turn into a story of serendipity, which is uh academic hallway at Drexel University, Um, at least the the way that my my interlocutors tell the story to me is that Erwin Mel, um, oh, gosh, now I'm forgetting his last name. That's really embarrassing. Hold, please. (sighs) Suffett. It's all right, it's okay. all right. The Erwin Mel Suffet just happened to be working across the hall from Stan Siegel. And Stan was a coffee, like he worked mm-hmm. on coffee and coffee flavor in in this like Drexel food right. science side. And Mel was working on questions of water and water quality. And, you know, as he and his graduate students, uh, specifically Mike McGuire, start. Thinking about and dealing with, like, they're getting these consulting jobs to deal with issues of flavor and odor. And the tools they have don't work, but, you know, coffee, conversations, et cetera, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. calling down the hall has a tool that might work. And so they really start trying to apply that. Love it.
0: That's very cool. That's how actual interdisciplinary stuff happens It's mm-hmm. just through personal connections and grassroots stuff not top-down administrative (laughs) decisions. Yeah. yeah, That's a beautiful story.
1: Yeah. The only way top-down makes it work is if, if they reward you for it in the sense of like, oh, you did this thing. We're going to still give you tenure.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you know, uh, know this story, but, um, there's so many interconnections with my early research with this stuff. It's kind of, it's, it's funny, like pollution, the relationship between pollution and food sciences. But there was this guy, Ari hagen was this, this food scientist at Caltech mm. who um, uncovered the, he used the uh, machines you were talking about earlier to figure out what pineapple flavor was by bringing in like 20 tons of, but he was also the guy who just dis- discovered that um, uh, automobiles were causing smog. Really? And uh, he used the same he used the same tools to figure that to figure that out. He used the he was divided the smog residues and eventually figured out what was doing it. So anyway, okay, there's all these fascinating sensory. <laughs> yeah, that's in chapter three or four of my book, maybe. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, I can send it to you. Um. So in the late 20th century, water quality and pollution become a big concern. I feel like the 1969 Cuyahoga River fire is like the 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 big symbol of this which that by the way is a very sensitive topic in my family because my family's from Cleveland and so like everyone including me thinks the Cuyahoga River fire while tragic of course and terrible also has some humorous dimensions and my mother is just totally opposed to this reading of it so anyway so you when 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 this becomes a concern you you find this really interesting like u.s french research network kind of being important for uh working on water quality issues and working through these things so tell us a bit about that research network how it came to be and and what it accomplished
1: so i i think one, I love that your family's from Cleveland and, and finds good jokes about a river catching on fire. <laughs> uh, the the thing that to me is really captivating about this French U.S. research network. It, once again, it goes back to serendipity in a in a sense. The the moments when two folks are talking, the way that a political environment has changed, specifically in France, this move towards public private. Partnerships when it came to water management, which created, mm-hmm. uh, we can call it a profit motive, if you will, for improving water quality in in the hmm. groups who are trying to compete for contracts. Because if you can say we produce better tasting water than yeah. our competitor, you actually, or, or we have better tools for producing better tasting water than our competitor, you actually have a, a foot to stand on. And I do think it's important. Mm-hmm. This is happening in the same time period when General Foods has a really robust research arm, when I guess Nestle still actually has a pretty robust in-house research arm, but Kraft had a robust in-house research arm when Companies Uh were really actively doing their own research as opposed to outsourcing. They had R&D
0: labs, right? Yeah. Yep, totally.
1: And because they had R&D labs and they had a a lot of water quality issues in France, you know, this work of, hey, let's, Uh Uh let's get our hands on a mass spec. Let's get our hands on a gas chromatograph olfactometer and start researching it. Let's talk with the other people who are doing it. And so um, I, I have no doubt, although Mel doesn't put it this way, that in many ways it was on his side. I, you know, I'm, I've been working on this thing. It's really interesting. Here's this really great partnership funding opportunity. Let's let's build something out. And so this they develop a network of back and forth training between uh, Drexel and um, Lyonese Dessol, which is now part of Suez Environmental, at least last time I checked, these guys changed stuff mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. and as they were sending students back and forth, this practice of thinking about water through a food science lens, which we, which um, is called flavor profile analysis. It's a TERT or an approach that was developed by a research group out of Boston, um, Arthur D. little and for. For the food industry, and this was the thing that Mel picked up from Stan and Drexel, and he and his colleagues started applying it elsewhere, Um, but the use of flavor profile analysis becomes this really robust approach within the water world for thinking about and describing these off tastes and smells in, in water. And hmm. so they're sending students back and forth. Jeanette Carey, who I mentioned in the book, she's unfortunately passed, was a grad student who was just like trained to do it. Um, I believe, and, and Lee, please cut this if it's wrong. I'll have to go double check. And then get okay. back to you.
0: <laughs>
1: Gary Burlingame told me, so he recently retired from Philadelphia water. He's been there for years that he, um, Helped train Jeanette, but I need to go double check that. I don't think that's right. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Jeanette goes over to France to train some folks. They're sending folks from France over to the US. And I'm just intrigued by this in part because it creates this school of thinking about tastes and smells and water that still exists today. And if you go read a sensory science textbook and they talk about different sensory science techniques, they'll note that flavor profile analysis, well, one of the early foundational modes for describing and quantifying tastes and smells found Mm -hmm. in substances is largely not being used in the food world anymore, but it's still pretty robust in the water world. And so uh, even though those two industries came together for a while, they have actually in many ways diverged again.
0: that's. I mean, there's so many fascinating aspects to this story, um, including... uh, you know, sometimes capitalism uh, <laughs> leads to improvement. You know, it's like, it's bad sides too, but if there's the right kind of pressures in the right circumstances. Oh, it's, it's just very interesting. And, you know, you know I think part of, part of, to draw out something you said, it's also about these huge corporations that are making food being water consumers, right? I mean, they're putting water in their products and that probably affects flavors. And so they're, they're cons- it's something they're concerned about. Is that part of what I hear you saying?
1: Um, Well, yes. (laughs) Huge food corporations are concerned about it. They weren't... um, Let me rephrase. My research did not take me down the pathway to actually poke at how someone like General Foods or Kraft Foods was managing their incoming water supply. But I do know that it is a, a massive concern and that a lot of places have if if the water supply is not good they've installed in-house filters and i think this is where the later chapter on direct potable reuse becomes so fascinating because yeah there's a massive incentive if if you are someone who needs a really high quality water to turn around and support your municipality doing it instead of you having to
0: totally. build
1: these things in um i can go down yeah. that road now if you want
0: Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, in your your research, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, is it something you've thought about or is it like a future research topic?
1: (laughs) So in many ways, (laughs) it's a future research topic with the exception of beer brewing, because
0: the beer brewers. Oh, right. Yeah. You mentioned this in your, uh, (laughs) you mentioned this, there is a brief mention of this in your book. So, I mean, you have thought about that side of it, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for example, um, next Monday, I'm headed to a local brewery to do some participant observation. Um, we have, so my graduate student colleague, she's graduating imminently, Marisa Manheim and I have been kind of tracking the work to promote water recycling here in Arizona through beer brewing. And um, we did a bunch of interviews with folks. And one thing that emerged was you had breweries that have enough money to have already installed in-house filtration systems. Uh And you have breweries that don't. And the folks who are hosting this event next week, they're a smaller brewery, and they don't have enough money to have an in-house filtration system. And so they've actually, yeah. at least this year, they are in many ways the face of Scottsdale Water's efforts to get the word out about recycled water, because for them, this is my read, <laughs> like they, their beer quality just improved because they now have access to- uh-huh. a a quality water supply that they didn't have access to previously that their competitors who are better capitalized do have access to.
0: Yeah, right.
1: The second you take water... That's
0: totally fascinating. Yeah. Go ahead. Do you want me to keep going? (laughs) Yeah, go. Go, go, go. This is good.
1: So with recycled water, this is where you're taking gray water or even black water, so it, it could be sewage to the most sewagey degree you can think of, and you are cleaning <laughs> it up. I recognize the word clean has its own issues, but you are taking stuff <laughs> out, you're treating it. Uh-huh. So what you get at the end is pretty close to just hydri- dihydrogen oxygen. It's really close to just water. It still has mm-hmm. a little bit left in it, but not much. And they actually have to remineralize it before it could ever go out into hmm. the system. Because if you just drank that stuff, you would have osteoporosis pretty quickly.
0: Um, oh, interesting. Because,
1: hmm. you know, it just think back to your high school chemistry and osmosis. Yeah. Like you have something that's got no minerals in it. It's just going to suck the minerals out and where are those minerals? In your bones.
0: Um, Shit.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think. Well,
0: I mean, that's a it's a totally fascinating story about the beer side of it. Just because, I mean, what you're saying is that access to water can become a kind of the right kind of water can become a barrier of entry to you know smaller companies that localities probably want they do want to have them around so it's really yeah. interesting Yeah. i mean
1: who knows yeah. whether what are the ethics of a highly water intensive industry like beer brewing in a state yeah. like arizona in a Depends. desert yeah so because
0: that's a much bigger issue we have trouble thinking through in this nation, I think. So yeah, maybe, maybe not just here.
1: It's really <laughs> just time for Pulque to wander back north across that border that had moved south over it. <laughs>
0: <and> yeah, <laughs> make a comeback. Um, your book also there's just this, this. I mean, you could write a whole book about just this topic, but there is this kind of remarkable historical rise of bottled water in the late 20th century. And now, I mean, I'm, you know, uh, one of my friends, Patrick McRae basically accused me of being acting like I'm too young because I'm my wife and I are these people who carry around like refillable water. So we don't do the bottled water thing. But I always have a bottle on me. And um, but, you know, you you argue one of your arguments is that in you know the early 21st century, French firms famously have these bottled water companies taught consumers to drink and evaluate water like wine so i mean like tell us a bit about that and how do you how do you come across this part of the story uh yeah
1: i'm not certain oh how did i come across that um gee i don't know exactly how i encountered jeremy moreau's work but the the rise of the water sommelier is probably the thing that led me down this hole so Uh, There Uh have, in the last 20, 15 to 20 years, been a slow but increasing number of folks who, in association with the rise of the bottled water industry and its subsequent struggles, especially in 2008, have have started to really point out that at least mineral waters have really interesting, distinctive characteristics. And I don't drink alcohol Hmm. for personal and religious reasons. And as a result of that... um, I'm very intrigued by products that offer me an opportunity to sit at a table with other folks and feel welcome. And I learned pretty quickly Mm -hmm. as a food studies graduate student that you could go out to a fancy restaurant and if you just order tap water, the waiters give you all sorts of side eye. But if you order a bottle of mineral mm-hmm. water, it's like you get a pass. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so when I started learning about these water sommeliers and uh, doing some of my field work in France and going into the Bon Marché and seeing that they had this, at the time, beautiful wall of mineral waters, one of which sold for mm-hmm. almost 100 euros just for a 750 milliliter bottle. Um, right?
0: <laughs> Holy smokes.
1: It, the bottle didn't have. I've heard
0: her- rumors about this stuff, but I've never <laughs> seen it with my own eyeballs.
1: I have amazing. And it, look up bling water, b l i n g. Yep. Okay. <laughs>
0: <It's>
1: expensive stuff. <laughs> um, like,
0: oh yeah, this is good. Okay.
1: As as water sommeliers start to come into being, and companies like Nestle that have really robust mineral water portfolios that go just beyond like, uh, pure life or in the case of PepsiCo, Dasani, um, there, there's this recognition that water needs to be sold for something other than just its status symbol. And this work Mm -hmm. to really kind of push back against the environment, increasing environmental awareness of the early 21st century becomes centered around taste. Now this is, It's still present if you go look at the marketing, but it's very much a late um, aughts, early 2010s, 2015 sort of timescale, and and then it kind of fades away as many fashion trends do. And so Mm -hmm. Nestle itself produces these amazing materials that are all about, like, where are mineral waters from? What's their terroir? How do you taste it? Uh, If you're an everyday consumer and you'd like Mm. to learn to appreciate water like a fine wine, we're going to help you start down that road, even if you're not going to go take a two-week or four-week course in Germany and how to become a water sommelier. So that's where we get started.
0: Wow. That's very... That's totally fascinating.
1: You should do it with one of your um, classes. It's really so,
0: fun. That does sound fun. Yeah. Well, maybe... Uh, well, next time I teach a grad seminar, we can read your book and we can get a bunch of waters. Uh, <laughs> do um, some tastings. Have a, have a blast with it. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, we can talk... Uh, we, we briefly touched on the wastewater topic that y- using Recycling wastewater into drinking water, but um, we just kind of briefly touched it when on it when we were talking about beer there for a second. But um, you know, this is where you kind of land the book, and I just wanted to like beyond what we said about the beer story, like what else kind of stands out to you about the this the rise of this idea that we should use wastewater, you know, turn wastewater into drinking water, and the resistance to it, and and these kinds of things that you touch on.
1: So. Part of what's so fascinating to me as, as we continue to think about food as water is when you hit the point where water recycling enters the conversation, it, it in many ways struggles to address or deal with the idea of water as a food um, because we don't, well, there's some exceptions. We eat a lot of fermented food, but we do not eat food that has been in contact with poop, with the exception of civic cat coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. it's such a fascinating struggle between social expectations of what something you ingest into your body should come into contact with and i think this takes us back in many ways to the reversal of yeah. the chicago canal um and sending it all downstream
0: yeah As exactly
1: <laughs> societies we've adopted very much an approach to allowing pollution if it goes elsewhere and water recycling pulls that those discards right back into intimate close potential contact with our bodies and one of your colleagues phil olson um Mm. we were chatting one day about this and he's like you realize arizona's in the process of passing some legislation that would allow chemical cremation to happen has anyone you talk to considered that this is also going to make you all cannibals? <laughs> I was like, thanks, Phil. It's such a
0: fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> That's right. It's not just waste. It's also dead bodies. It's also dead <laughs> <Good>. bodies. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and it's kind of like metaphysical, too, right? I mean, yeah.
1: Like, I, I mean, we all die. We all We are made of... Going back to we are made of mm. <laughs> stars, we are all made of a lot of different things mm-hmm. that have been recycled through our environment. And so the, the part of me that's into that's technology right. just loves that we figured out an amazing technological approach where we can really clean water in a way or take stuff out of water in a way that also deals with some of our other unfortunate, uh, what's the word I want to use? excesses of the 20th century like all of the content what we call contaminants of emerging concern that are in the water the pharmaceutical bypass Mm -hmm. extras cetera so that uh oh yeah that's Mm -hmm. out there could be addressed by this technology we could produce water that is as far as we know much safer for us and Part of the work of Hmm. getting people to think about this is, of course, persuading them to put it in their bodies in the first place. Beer is a great way to do it. I personally have been working on a Popsicle project, um, not to get people to put it in their bodies per se, but to get people to... So I have this theory, (laughs) and I talk Mm -hmm. about this in the conclusion. The theory is that flavor tells us stories and that we could potentially of take food science take sensory science and play with it a little bit and turn it into a way to tell our own stories about what we think the future might be like in a medium that isn't necessarily words right away but rather is inviting people to viscerally experience something and so um, we've been working with tap water hesitant consumers here in arizona so these are folks who literally Mm -hmm. uh, no matter their economic range go out uh take those big bottles they will go somewhere and refill them at either a store or in arizona we have these things called water mills they look like a little windmill you just go fill your water up there for some reason my friend
0: lived in tucson and was uh part of that subculture like he would not drink the normal tap water they were going to some place yeah every week I mean, he's also, you know, I don't know, he's, you know, I don't know if he's QAnon, but he believes in a lot of conspiracy theories. And so it was like, you know, uh, there were chemtrails and stuff being talked about by people around him. So, I mean, it was a totally fascinating, like, water subculture and how it connects yeah. to these issues. right? Yeah.
1: And and so we've been working with these folks for um, almost three years now and, and just thinking with them about, you know, you don't like tap water. What's your take on, on this technology. And last year, we took them to Scottsdale Water, and they had an opportunity to really learn hands-on pretty much about portable reuse without going into the plant proper, Um, Mm -hmm. and left with a pretty positive view. And so a year later, we met up with them again and said, okay, uh, let's imagine that your legislature, your local government has decided we're going to move forward with it, which is pretty much what's happening here. So- Mm -hmm. I want you to tell a story to these people about this future like what are your what? what's a hope what's a concern what's a question you have um and hmm. and we had them tie each one of those things to a flavor and then worked with the local popsicle company and uh they made popsicles and then we went and served them to regulators um and scott stillwater kindly said hey yeah you can have some of our water to make these with too that's cool the wonderful part is we got amazing delicious popsicles that told really complicated stories about people's concerns about hey what's going to happen to our environment uh is this still going to be safe five years from now like i, I believe you that mm-hmm. the technology is good but like what if yeah, you yeah. run out of money because <laughs> right. city governments have run out of money before yep um, and what we learned is you can't just hand people a popsicle with a label and expect them to read it. So we're going to reboot and do this at a dinner with some captive uh, stakeholders. That sounds
0: good. Yep. I got you. (laughs) Where
1: it's their dessert course and it comes with a menu description and a verbal description
0: of what's
1: going on. We'll see if it helps. Might
0: not. That's cool. So I feel like uh, not only have we, we kind of touched on research you're currently doing and might do in the future, but we've also created several new research projects for you in this conversation. But uh, what are, what is, what's next for you? And like, what's, you know, like what are you really paying attention to? What's your next, what do you, what's your core project these days?
1: Um, well, my core, core project right now is talking to people about the book. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I have been working with, Questions of smell a lot more. I got really interested in smell as, as part of the water project because mm-hmm. so much of how we engage with water is either mouthfeel or smell, even though it's orthonasal. And um, I've got a smaller project in Mesa where we're thinking about whether smell can be, uh, can you activate a thinking of smells beyond like and dislike into curiosity? And specifically thinking about how smells have been used to define belonging historically and in contemporary society. So a grad mm-hmm. student I'm working with, uh, we're pretty focused on a contemporary aspect, building smell libraries with uh, people in different neighborhoods in Mesa to say, hey, this is what we mm-hmm. think our neighborhood is and smells like. And then my own work, looking at historical smells that have been present. So very inspired by Melanie Kiekel's work
0: yeah i was Uh, gonna ask if yeah Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) and uh, specifically sugar beet factories so um because they are one my dad grew up in an area near a sugar beet factory that's still operating so it's the smell of going to my grandparents to me and to hang out with my cousins it's also a gross smell and apparently there are a bunch of super fun sites that are also where sugar beet factories used to be and Mm. I think there's something fun to think about there, but also concerning ties us back into histories of sweetening um, present, like who, who has the joy or sorrow of smelling the smells of sugar production and, yes. and what does it mean in a, our society moving forward?
0: That's cool. Well, Christy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and coming on and talking about your fascinating book. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you so much, Lee. And I am going to, I mean, you can send me your chapter, but I can also just go check your book out and read it. And I I mean, I'm most familiar with your maintainer's work. So uh, I look forward to to learning about pineapple and smog. This is very exciting. Yeah,
0: yeah. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at LeeVinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts, so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I wanna thank my brother, Jake Vinzel for writing the music for the show. I wanna thank my buddy, Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel, And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.